Welcome to the Tokenomics DAO podcast, where we explore everything tokenomics related, ranging from deep dives on the tokenomics of the newest protocol to demystifying the nuance of building a successful token ecosystem. Our goal is to bring awareness to the importance of tokenomics and the crucial role it plays in defining the success of a protocol, helping make tokenomics relevant for everyone, builders and investors alike. I'm your host, Flo, joined by my co-hosts, Jason and or Lovis. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to episode 27, 26, 27 of the Tokenomics Style podcast. Um, today with Rockwell Shah. Um, my name is Lovis. I'm your host <laughs> today. Um, Rockwell and I met on a Twitter space where we were both invited to discuss tokenomics. I think it was like surviving the bear market or something like that was the title. I was very impressed with his uh, knowledge, um, especially relating to tokenomics of NFTs or NFT based projects, um, something where I don't actually know a whole lot. So I wanted to bring him on and, um, you know, just have a cool chat about the tokenomics of NFTs and like what's going on in that space. Uh, in general. So first of all, Rocco, please do us the honors and introduce yourself. Well, Lovis, thanks for having me here. Excited to chat. It was a fun space. I don't know, it was maybe two months ago, three months ago, something like that. I think and, so. you know, it's interesting. Uh, I never thought my economics degree would ever be as useful as it is today. And, you know, you know, the things that we were studying back in university, most people wanted to go into investment banking, or maybe the public sector, but nobody ever thought like, oh, we're going to be designing economic systems in this new crypto metaverse, you know, type thing. So it's, it's hilarious how things work out. And, you know, for me, I graduated in economics from Cornell University, and I spent the better part of 10 years actually not utilizing my, my econ degree. So I was working in a medical software company called For Patient Care. I started in that business as a very lowly tech support agent, like literally doing screen shares with doctors and fixing their medical software and eventually become, became president of that firm. And 10 years in healthcare will teach you, it's just like all sorts of things that are wrong with people. And very much one of the things at the top of the list was sleep. And so after we exited for patient care, um, I founded a company called Paziz where we make a suite of digital health apps that help people beat their insomnia, depression, anxiety, stress, chronic pain, and a whole host of other things. And so that business is doing pretty well today. But you know, right around mid, I want to say like May of 2021, roughly, maybe, maybe April-ish, um, I started really getting into being a DeFi degen, like pretty hardcore. You know, I I bought like years before I bought Bitcoin and Ethereum, but like 2021 for me was like, hey, there's all these like DeFi protocols. Let's play around. Let's see what's going on with this this decentralized finance. And got into some some interesting protocols and some interesting adventures. And that eventually led me to um, uh, founding Starship Guild, which is one of the largest blockchain gaming guilds in the world. And so there's a whole sector of the crypto economy in the metaverse and blockchain gaming and new business models are popping up. And so we created an organization there scaled from like zero to over 2,200 staff in six months. It was crazy. Um, you know, we were growing really, really fast in, in 2021. And it was through that experience that I discovered, man, web three is really hard for people. 
like understanding these concepts of, oh, I have to self-custody and this wallet and I connect it to this DAP and how do I even move money around? And you can see just how much friction there is. I remember I would screen share with my friends and I would like do a Zoom screen share with their phone and be like, hey, like, you know, like, okay, tap this, then do this, then paste this. And you know, it was just so bizarre to people. They didn't really understand. They didn't even have the mental models to really understand what was going on. So that led us to founding a school called Invisible College, where we help people learn, build, and invest in Web3. And the school has thousands of students, and it's been a really great, wonderful community. Like One of the things I love about Invisible College is that when you go into the Discord, rarely will you ever hear anybody talk about prices or floor prices or like when moon or when Lambo or like any of this, this, this nonsense. Like people there are really interested in the technology and in building interesting applications and actually delivering value to the world, which is, it's like, oh, delivering value. Like what, what a crazy concept that is, right? Um, so that's a little bit of, uh, oh, and I forgot to mention that as part of Starship Guilds, we launched a, a Metaverse DeFi protocol and raised about $2 million in, in three days. And then with Invisible College, we, we raised about half a million for the school through selling NFTs. Really cool. Well, awesome for this super like concise and <laughs> um, emotional roller coaster, coaster of an intro. So just really quick, one <laughs> thing you mentioned in the beginning, you really made it from like tech support to president in 10 years or? Yeah, last, yeah. so it took me, um, I graduated school in 2010 and by 2016, I was president of the company. And Amazing. I mean, I think that will be worth a episode at some point, but probably not on Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe a different podcast you start. Yeah. Cool. All right. Awesome. So, okay. You told us about Starship Guild and Invisible College. So fun fact, I actually just uh, recorded first section of um, tokenomics education as part of tokenomics style earlier today. Oh, nice. um, so yeah, for sure. So a lot of what you said resonates with me strongly. People need to they just they need to understand how it works and like kind of the understand the nuts and bolts right and um the cool thing is when you do build a community around this idea of uh deeper understanding um you attract really awesome people right i mean this kind of mm -hmm. resonates what you were saying on your discord nobody talks about when moon um yeah value creation at the core and like figuring out how to make these things sustainable i think is on a lot of people's minds because you know, just pump and dumps are not gonna are not gonna get us there. So turns <laughs> out Ponzi's are not sustainable. I think yeah. Web three has a golden rule, and the the golden rule is actually pretty straightforward. It's that value should accrue to the network of participants based on the value of their participation, right? So it's like, hey, the more you do, the more you're gonna make right? The, the more you show up here and the more that you contribute, the more mm -hmm. that you will, you will earn or more that value will accrue to you. And I think okay. that is really the golden rule of Web3. Everything basically flows from that. And if you understand that to a really deep level, you'll understand what Web3 is trying to accomplish. And I think, you know, I was giving, um, I was giving a talk the other day and it was an intro to Web3 talk and people, these were marketers, these were people like career professionals that were really interested in getting to Web3, but they wanted to understand how to think about it. 
And I gave them like the lay of the landscape, right? Like the introduction of like, okay, what is crypto? What is tokenomics? What is all of this stuff? What are tokens? How to think about this? And ultimately what Web3 is, is a set of ideals. It's not like Web3 is not a thing. It's a set of ideals that we hope to aspire to. We hope that, you know, we can turn more people into owners versus renters. We hope that we can, you know, build systems that are much more decentralized and tamper-proof. We hope that, um, you know, we can accrue value to people based upon the value of their participation. Like we hope these things, but they're not, they're not real yet. Right. And, and to like delude or fool ourselves to believe like, Hey, the dream has been fully realized. Like it's, it's rainbows and sunshine and flowers. It's like, no, it's not. Right. But that's, that's the journey that we're on. The reason that so many people are excited and the reason that so many smart, interesting, engaging people are building in web three is because they want to live up to these ideals. They want to live up to this new future and there's no guarantee of success, but it's, you know, for many of us, we think it's better than what exists today. Yeah, completely agree. So we're going through um, exactly the same uh, evolution, I guess. So, you know, as being part of building a DAO myself, figuring out how to reward value creation is actually really difficult, right? Because you need to track all kinds of metrics or, but like, then it's like, is it really trackable, you know? Do you want to measure input KPIs? Okay, so say somebody's in charge of your Twitter account. Do you want them to write 10 threads or do you want them to write the one thread that gets a thousand likes? Well, you kind of want both, but how do you, you know, how do you measure this fairly? Um, mm -hmm. And so there's a, I mean, there's so endless opportunities still in creating the new tool set that people will need or like organizations will need to do this. And um, yeah, I think there's a lot of people building that. There's a lot of stuff. We're, we're trying out a ton of stuff. Um, but ultimately, we end up making our own like Google Sheet because we're more comfortable with it because <laughs> it feels it's exactly the way we want it, you know, rather than trying to right. use like uh, Coordinate or Dwork or all of these are helpful tools and we use them, but there's still some more to add to it. But yeah, exactly. So these these ideals um, that we have, they're not fully realized yet, right? Um, but but hey, at least we have them, right? At least we're at least at the foundation that we want to build upon, that we want to aspire to. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, having having a dream, having a mission, having ideals are important. You know, it's it's the foundation of what you're building on. If you don't have a foundation, I mean, where are you going to go? Like, whatever you build is always going to be on shaking ground. So, I think, you know, part of the process of building, and this is something that's really hard for people that are not builders or are not entrepreneurs to understand is that you, there's a lot of um, discomfort that you have to live with day to day in the fact that your dream is not fully realized, right? You, you basically have to ship products too early. You have to be willing to deal with the embarrassment of putting a first version out there where it's like, oh, this is no, nowhere near what I imagine it going to be one day. You know, the even at large scales, you know, we're not even talking about like small time entrepreneurs, even at large scales, do you think that Apple was super happy with the first version of the iPhone? It's like, no, probably not. Like they okay. dreamed of many more things that the iPhone could do one day. Right. And, you know, so on and so forth with the iPad as well. It's like, I remember when the iPad first came out, it didn't have multitasking. 
it was like, what is this computer device that does not have multitasking? Like, yeah, multitasking has been around for uh, like 20 years at this point. And this, this like basic device can't do it. Um, you know, it happens at all levels of the game from small to large is that you have to be as an entrepreneur or as a builder, you have to be willing to deal with the discomfort of not fully realizing your dream for long periods of time and, and talking about what the dream is at, over and over again and being willing to deal with all of the negative comments that come with people and they saying, you know, people naysaying say like, oh, but it doesn't do this, this or that yet. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't. It's not fully realized. It's not a fully realized vision yet. So, you know, I think a lot of folks are learning that um, as we are making more people into investors, you know, think about the traditional economy. In the traditional economy, you have to be an accredited investor to participate, right? In crypto, everybody participates or like almost everybody participates. Like even the gas tokens that you're holding, even the Ethereum or the Bitcoin or the Avalanche or the Solana you're holding is technically an investment asset, right? So, you know, you, you are meaningfully participating as an investor in almost every, every part of the stack of this new economy. And so it, it just, I think a lot of investors are, a lot of accidental investors are getting an education about what it means to be long-term believers or long-term holders or to buy into a vision of a project, right? Yeah, so uh, several several rabbit holes, right? That that you just opened up. Um, the, so Which everybody one will we go down first? <laughs> everybody participates in Web three, right? Um, the cool, yeah. I mean, the amazing thing, and also like the the innovative thing, is that you can actually own the protocol layer, right? So like, yeah, with the, with the internet, like you could have bought like what like Yahoo and Google probably pretty early, and they would you would have done great, but you could not buy. TCP IP, right? Like the internet protocol, basically. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, um, so I think that for every flavor of investor, there's something there, right? Because if you're like, oh, Ethereum is going to be the world computer, they're going to do amazing. Well, then just hold that, right? You're going to most likely do okay. Um, <laughs> In fact, if you had just held Bitcoin and Ethereum, you would have outperformed the vast majority, like 99% of the investors in the market just holding Bitcoin and Ethereum, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then this this other thing. So this is one of our favorite things that we always keep going back to this uh, principal agent problem, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is what you said earlier: the the owner versus the agent, the 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 owner versus the renter. One is trying to make the whole thing uh, a success. The other one's trying to just, I guess, do the bare minimum to not have catastrophic failure. <laughs> <laughs> so to say, um, and the and the amazing thing about it is that tokens give you a whole new opportunity to create owners, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, I guess so. With that in mind, is, is did you did you pick up tokenomics? I guess as a side project pr product of like your involvement in general in Web three, or is this something that you purposely tried to understand? I guess you said you have an economics degree, so it just kind of comes together in your brain or how do you go about that? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, when we started the school, people asked a lot about tokenomics and, and they wanted, you know, somebody, somebody to teach them tokenomics in the school. And so I went on a journey myself of like, okay, who are the best tokenomics thinkers? You know, what's the best material out there? Um, as you said, like, you know, I, I'm naturally inclined to economics already just because of my background. So picking it up is, is kind of second nature. 
And what I found was that there actually are not that many great tokenomics thinkers out there. You know, there's a, there's a few that, that talk about it, but even if you were to try to Google a coherent definition of what tokenomics is, you would not find it. Like people would say things like, oh, tokenomics is the economics of tokens. It's like, oh, thank you. Super helpful. Um, yeah. You know, and what that means to me is, hey, this is really exciting. This is a brand new wide open field where mm -hmm. you can do interesting work. You can do research, you can do development, you can put out, you know, interesting papers or blogs. And that's what, you know, it, it got me excited almost in the same way as, as when they teach us classical economics and they're like, okay, you know, Adam Smith and then the book and then the, 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 the and then you have like uh, Keynesian economics and then you have the, you know, the Friedman people. Like they, they, the history is, is laid out, the economics history is laid out with really important moments of, of different movements in economics that color our thinking in the field for long periods of time. And here we're presented at a moment in crypto where we get a chance to do that. We get to define you know, what, it, what tokenomics actually even means, right? Like what, what, it, what is good tokenomics? What is bad tokenomics? And we get to help discover that and define it and put it out there. And so that became really interesting to me. I was like, oh, cool. Like, Finally, all this stuff that we, we learned at university is, is relevant here, right? Um, because they also teach you in, in economics that, hey, yeah, it's kind of a hard science. It's kind of a soft science. Like it could be a harder science if only we could experiment or have like, like large population experiments. But look, it's kind of unethical to force recessions in an economy. Like, like you can't just play with people's lives this way. So, you know, video games were an interesting um tangent to that it's like oh we could test on video game economies and see like these economic theories how they play out in video game economies but now we can test them in crypto economies on you know large and small scales in ways that are just not possible in the real economy so in any case um i went on a journey from my very first principles it's like okay what is tokenomics like at its base level and you know to answer what is tokenomics you have to understand what crypto is and, you know, like a kind of a shorthand to this is that crypto is programmable incentives. And in, in crypto, incentives are programmed through tokens. So like, I want you to do something. I'm going to give you a token if you do it, right? And, and, and that's like, you know, as silly and simple as that sounds, it's actually magical. It's like, oh, I want there to be a decentralized uh, reserve currency. So if you, if you help secure the network, we're going to give you Bitcoin. Right. Or I want there to be a decentralized internet. So if you run this hardware and these nodes, um, I will give you a cryptocurrency called Helium. Right. Or like we want there to be decentralized forever storage. So if you run the nodes to store the data, we'll give you our weave. Right. The point here is that all of a sudden you don't need US dollars or some other, you know, traditional currency in order to reward people for doing a behavior or an activity. You can say, hey, I've made up this token to incentivize this behavior. And if the market thinks that that behavior is interesting and valuable, then the token will have value, right? And if it's not interesting and valuable, then it's not gonna have value, right? And so ultimately what tokenomics is, is the study of token-based incentive mechanisms. That's it, it, it is really that simple. Like tokenomics, very straightforward. It's like, it's the study of token-based incentive mechanisms. And you can't, like you almost not find this anywhere on the internet. If you, if you Google around, like, what is tokenomics? Nobody will say this very simple thing. It's yeah. so straightforward. 
But the thing is like, most people are not talking about it from first principles. They're not thinking about like, what exactly are we doing here? What is the point of all of this? Like, like yeah. what, what, what is the framework that's powering all, all of this activity? So I think once you understand those things, it's like, okay, crypto is programmable incentives. Incentives are programmed through tokens. Tokenomics is the study of token-based incentive mechanisms. You lay a foundation of like, okay, cool. Like what else can come after this? Like what, what else am I building off of understanding here? Yeah. And there's many things that play into tokenomics, which we could we could talk about, but I certainly don't want to take turn this podcast into a, a tokenomics lecture, right? No, I really I think you lay it out so well. And um so you, so this is sometimes you know these uh chicken and egg. So I don't know if you gave me this definition and I've made it my own or if I already had it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I definitely um but this is definitely how I uh, define tokenomics as well the study of um, token-based incentive design that's how i uh, lectured it or taught it earlier today in the first recording yes thank you for spreading <laughs> the good word love it i know um i guess so what somebody uh, had told me which i think was a really good point is that um so first of all what you and you had touched on this beautifully right the econ is kind of missing this microcosm to experiment right um and I think that's why ultimately uh, Web3 will grow at such, like it's such an impressive pace and innovate at such an impressive pace because really every single uh, project is, a, is, an iteration, is an innovative iteration. And then basically we'll, we'll copy what works, we'll discard what doesn't. And um, like you said, yeah, doing that on a large scale economy is kind of tricky because yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to put a bunch of people in recession, but then I guess in a microcosm, it works because the stakes are much, much smaller. Um, but then additionally, and well, I guess because of that, maybe tokenomics are more design oriented, right? Like, so I want to, I want to get to a certain outcome. So I try to define the rules for that or mm -hmm. the incentive mechanisms where um, econ always tries to be predictive, like given a set of rules, what will be the outcome, right? So we, we have a lot more liberties to experiment too. And with tokens, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's a great point. We, we tend to, in crypto, think about outcomes more. Although, you know, I, I think the, the rise of behavioral economics was really powerful and important for economics, the economics field in general. And understanding that, look, like human beings are not that rational. Like, yeah, yeah, we're somewhat rational some of the time, but most of the time we're not that rational. And all of these things that you believe because at, at its... Um, at its core, you think that human beings are, are rational, like rational agents in the economy, lead to things that are just untrue in the real world. And so, you know, this has gotten us into trouble in the economics field many times. And it, behavioral economics is this, is this in, in my, at least my opinion, this great field of economics that's like, hey, dose of reality, guys, uh, this is quite different than what you think it is. And human beings behave in all these bizarre ways. Let's understand these ways they behave so we can build better systems that can account for, you know, the unintended consequences of incentive designs, right? So, and we do this, and now we do this in crypto too. Like we're understanding a lot more of the unintended consequences from various token-based incentive designs where, um, you know, we can't just assume that people are going to be rational computers. It's like everything is going to be, you know, this way. And it's like, that's not how it's going to be, right? 
Yeah, but the cool thing is that there are actors in the system that are actual computers. So a lot of stuff can be <laughs> kind of set in stone, right? It can be put in code and then those are the rules more or less, right? Very, then of course there's mechanisms to change it and so forth. Um, I mean, thinking about the uh, don't, don't go down the code is law rabbit hole. <laughs> that's, that's a deep, that's a deep it's, rabbit hole, Lois. It, it's law until it isn't, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, one thing that I've found, well, I mean, so this and this is also tricky, right? So I think of uh, tokenomics as more transparent, but that's because I'm part of a group that does a ton of research on this, and we're trying to create a kind of like almost like a standard to document for documentation. Mm. And of course, why do we do it? Well, because it isn't right. It's hard to find um, the facts and the right. figures. Somebody um, was just asking me the other day. They were like, "Hey, does, do you have a template for a white paper?" And uh, you know, especially the tokenomics section. And I think, yeah. you know, in this whole build in public, uh, you know, crypto tends to build in public naturally. It's like you can go to a project's Discord or a Telegram and talk to the team much more readily than you could say talk to the team behind a public company. Right, like good luck right. pulling up the New York Stock Exchange, picking a stock, and going to their Discord and asking the team <laughs> any 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 kind of questions about about the protocol. Right? Could so, I see your financial statements, please? Um, well, yeah. you get the quarterly filings. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so there's in some ways there's a lot more transparency in crypto. I mean, in some ways there are there there isn't. Like there's certainly ways to um, obfuscate yeah financial transactions and and what's going on but it, i think net net it's far more transparent like blockchain rails are far more transparent than the traditional economy yeah i would agree um okay so i know that you have a deep background way deeper than me in this whole nft space so that's what i'm trying mm -hmm. to kind of pivot into so you know honestly uh i I don't think so, but many people probably assume that well, NFTs, right, non-fungible tokens, how can they even have tokenomics? Or like, what, I guess, what are the design, the incentive mechanisms involving NFTs? Can you poke into that a little bit? Because I'm, I'm actually super curious myself to learn more about that. Yeah, so I think we have to start with what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. Like, what is happening in the industry? And I think... Oftentimes when we're analyzing these things, we don't start from this, this base. It's like, it just walk into um, a situation. It's like, what, what is actually happening here? Like, what are the incentives that are being played out? I think for people, when they look at the NFT market, especially when they're looking from the outside, the assumption is that, you know, NFTs are about art collection, right? Or NFTs are about utility or some kind it's like ticketing or you know it's like uh, it's an, it's the next generation for unlocking um some experiences some utility um some memberships of some kind and while that is true in some small portion like there is a small portion of the market that's interested in art collecting there is a small portion of the market that are utility-based nfts the vast majority of the market is driven by the game of NFT trading. And the game of NFT trading basically is the biggest blockchain game in the world. And what people are doing is they're, they're effectively playing poker with uh, you know, non-fungible tokens where they're trying to outsmart other people and take their money, right? So it's like, they're trying to not be the bag holder. 
and they're trying to make other people the bag holder. And it's this, this very large, like one of the largest games of hot potato in the world, where it's just like, it's like, no, I don't want to be holding it. You hold like, I'll hold it for a little while until you think the potato is more valuable and I'll throw it to you, right? Um, and this is effectively what's happening, right? And you have to understand the mentality of the market participants. Like there's not that many people trading NFTs in the world. You know, like the number of actual hardcore traders could, could probably be described in the low tens of thousands, right? Uh, which is, I mean, that's a glaringly small number, right? The number of people that have ever traded an NFT is probably on the course of like low digit millions, right? We know from the market that about 92% of the people that traded, trade NFTs are at a loss, right? So only about 8% of the people in the market are actually profitable. And so only 8% of the, the players in this game are actually winning. 92% of the players are losing, so to speak. Why do I tell you this? I tell you this because in order to design tokenomics, you need to understand the incentives of the participants, right? You need to understand the incentives of the game. If you don't understand the game that's being played, how are you going to design tokenomics around it, right? It's just, right. So the game is not, at least in this stage, at this moment, the game is not about art. It's not about utility at a large scale. At, at small scales, yes, but at large scales, no. This is also why NFT trading volumes have come down so considerably. If you look at the highs, it's like there was, I think, something like $500 million traded in one day on, mm -hmm. on, on OpenSea sometime last year. Now there's like the volume is 99% down from that, like way, way down, right? Well, why is that? Uh, it's partially because the players at the table lost all their money, <laughs> right? Like, like if 92% of players are down, right? Uh, where are you going to get liquidity? Where are you going to get money, right? And this is why when you hear about the NFT industry, oftentimes you'll hear, what's the meta, right? What's the meta? Like, you know, it's like, is our Freeman's the meta? Our utility projects the meta? Our art, our, our art blocks, like generative art, the meta? It's like, what's the meta today? And you would only ask, what's the meta if there was a game being played? And again, the game is NFT trading, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so you will also hear people talk about the liquidity in the space. Liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. I almost never, like my, I'm married to a conservator. She restores fine art. So I have a, like a decent amount of surface area with the fine art world. I generally do not hear people walking around in the fine art world talking about the liquidity of the fine art space, right? Like, like that doesn't really happen. Like no, nobody's walking around like, what, what's the meta of fine art? Like, what, like what's, what's, what's the liquidity? You know, at Christie's auction, you know, if there's a record-breaking Christie's auction, people aren't mad because it took liquidity out of the system, right? It's like, oh, the liquidity is gone. You know, again, you have to understand the game that's being played. And the game that's being played with NFT tra trading or NFTs is the game of NFT trading, which meta matters a lot because it's like, what is the dominant strategy that's going to win? And then liquidity matters a lot because you could only win the chips at the table, right? You can only win the money that's there because it's a zero sum game. It's basically poker, right? 
you can only win the amount of money that's at the table. You can't win more money than that's at the table. And so if less money is at the table, of course you're going to get mad because you're like, oh, they drain the liquidity. They drain the money off the table. Like that's less money I can win, right? So, so, is, with, uh, so sorry, quick question. So the dominant, so the meta is the dominant winning strategy. Is that, is that what? Yeah, that it's like, more so, so like the, the meta is a term from video games and like meta is the set of strategies that are, are like the winning in fashionable strategies. Right. Okay. And so, so they are kind of the, the accepted dominant strategies come coming from like group think of like, Hey, this is, this is what our, our cult, our gaming culture says is the dominant strategy of this particular game. Now it, it's important to know the, the meta isn't necessarily the dominant strategy. Right. It's what the it's what the crowd believes is the dominant strategy. Right. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes uh you can, you know, you can you can win by being a contrarian and being like, okay, there's something wrong with this meta, or there's some hole in it, or some gap in it, or some opportunity in it. I'm gonna exploit that. And then you exploit it, and then people get to know that you exploit it, and then your strategy ends up becoming the new meta, right? And it's like all of a sudden you know, it's like the meta changes. And so with, with games, um, meta changes all the time with NFT trading, because it's a game meta changes all the time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and because the participants have particularly high levels of ADHD, you know, the, the, the meta, you know, is like constantly changing. So I, that, that all of this is to give you context so that we can actually talk for real about tokenomics. This is, this is what's happening. Um, you know, and this is also why the projects that, that tend to be the realist that are delivering the, the most actual real world value are not paid attention to by the market because the market, like the meta is not, Hey, we care about projects that are actually delivering long-term value because you're not a long-term holder. So if you're not a long-term holder, why do you care about projects delivering long-term value? All you're doing is trying to convince the next person behind you, you know, to buy this asset off of you for more, right? Yeah. And so, so then you get projects that are painting like very lofty visions and dreams and like, hey, we're going to make a triple A game or we're, you know, going to uh, save the world from hunger, so, like some, some nonsense, right? And it's like anybody who is any, has any level of sophistication as an investor can look at the, the dreams being promised and being like, that is utterly ridiculous. Like this is clearly a group of like 18 or 20 year olds that, that they either they're trying to outright like grift you or, you know, they don't understand what they're, what they're trying to develop or like the thing that they're going after. But anyways, I don't want to dive too much into the, like the mentality of a lot of these NFT project founders, but in any case, that's what's actually happened. Right. So like, for, for example, CPG Club. CPG Club is an amazing um, uh, NFT collection. It's, and it's, it's led by Chris Cantino, who has like over 100,000 followers on Twitter, is a popular you know, social media personality. And he launched a collection that's one of the realest collections around. I mean, they're, they're actually really trying to build something substantive like a real business that's delivering real value and they're doing it methodically and what does the market do the market punishes them 
right? So like their mint, their mint price for their NFT was was two point five ETH. I think now you could probably pick up a CPG NFT for like 0.4, 0.5, right? So it's lost a lot of its value, even though it is quite literally one of the realest projects around. Like, mm -hmm. I, I mean, just like they have an, an incredible members. They have uh, just it, like incredible initiatives. They start an incubator program where they're literally giving $50,000 of non-dilutive equity to web three projects like they're doing a bunch of things that are actually real and not participating so much in this nft trading game and the market punishes them for that and that's pretty much true universally across the board um so i think this is the context of understanding what's going on now this is also why you see many nft project founders being very very angry when royalties are not paid when people buy and sell their collection. And so, mm. you know, many people get very excited about this idea of, hey, you can embed royalties into NFTs. So like, finally, artists can get paid, right? Like, that's the dream that yeah. we were pitched. That was the dream that we were promised is that, all right, like uh, NFTs are going to make art awesome because no longer is it going to be, you know, Vincent Van Gogh situation where makes incredible art, but, you know, ends up, dying penniless right uh where it's like finally you as an artist can continue to make at least some money as your art as the pieces of artwork go out there and they proliferate in the world and they, they change hands like you're not left out in the dry when your piece sells for a hundred million dollars 10 years after you created it right that's the dream but the reality is that it turns out royalties are not actually baked at the, 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 the smart contract level for NFT collections. So mm. there's not a, you know, and people make this mistake in it, or they have this belief that it's like, oh, it's embedded in the collection itself. It's not. It's embedded in, right now, it's embedded in the marketplaces. So, mm. you know, a marketplace has to agree to respect the royalties of the collection. And now you're seeing marketplaces come out and they say, no, <laughs> like, 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 we're not going to do it. And so, um, pseudo swap is probably the most famous for this. And, and, you know, there's, there's others that have followed suit. I think X2, Y2 also followed suit in, in pseudo swap, but in any case, you're getting marketplaces now that are saying, well, we're going to let the buyer decide if they're going to pay royalties or not, or, right. you know, the buyer and sellers. And it's like, that's not really gonna work. Like, like, <laughs> like you're 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 basically saying, hey, out of the goodness of your heart, market participants, can you please pay royalties? And think about what's happening. Most of the market is NFT traders. Right. NFT traders do not care about the the art. They don't care about the the collection. They don't care about the long term interest of the project. They care about flipping, and they yeah. care about their bottom line profit. Well, then it's just so, extra cost, right? Yeah. yeah. And so now you have this battle between NFT project founders who are saying we want royalties because that's a real, that's the, that's basically the only real revenue stream that they have as a project. Right. Um, and then the, the NFT traders who are like, I, I want the money. Like, I don't want to just give you the money. Right. So now there's a whole debate of like, well, wait a second. How, how do people create sustainable NFT collections? 
right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, what does that even mean? And, you know, I, I want to pause here because Lovis, this is a, is a pretty deep rabbit hole we can go down. I just want to make sure that, that you're okay going down this rabbit hole because there's, there's quite a bit more to this. Um, I love it. Let's go. <laughs> okay. All right. So, okay. so, okay. Well, I guess, um, but we're, we're firmly in the NFT art space with the sustainable NFT art collection, right? So, because I do want to ideally also touch on this, um, NFTs that are like gaming assets and, you know, mm. for a time they were paying yield and doing all these amazing things. Right. So I, I don't know what the market situation is there, but I assume it's also way down. Um, but let's but but i am super curious about the nft art so let's let's go and then hopefully we still have time to touch on the other thing okay. if not then oh. we'll just have to bring you back sometime <laughs> yeah 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 um so so this is a really interesting the royalty problem is a really interesting problem where where people are saying like hey what are the sustainable revenue streams for an nft collection and like the first thing that we want to point out is okay this whole game of NFT trading itself is not sustainable. So you're trying to build a yeah. business on an already non-sustainable infrastructure. But let's just assume NFT trading was sustainable, mm -hmm. right? Um, would it make sense for, for royalties to be enforced? And I think that the answer is, yeah, because the game is NFT trading, right? And so if, if the game is NFT trading, then people are going to be incentivized to trade a lot that's going to generate fees, and then that can go back to the collections. But if you're not in the game of NFT trading, either because you know people don't have any money to trade, and so they're like the participants have gone down, or because you're actually moving towards a more healthy ecosystem where people are holding the NFTs and not trading because they, they're long-term believers in the project, well, then you don't have sustainable revenue streams, right? right. This, this royalty, this idea of royalty is incentivizing the wrong behavior for building long-term projects, right? Mm. You're, you're incentivizing people to trade the asset that they're holding and not be a believer, right? Mm. Not be a holder. And so, you know, that there's a very fundamental first principles problem there that I, I don't think a lot of projects are really thinking about, which um, can be solved in a number of ways. And we can talk about some of the solutions, but before we talk about the solutions, let's talk about how this works in the traditional economy. In the traditional economy, you start a company, you as the founder own 100% of the shares, right? And then you say you want to do, maybe you take a co-founder, so you split some of the shares with them. Maybe you do an investment round, and your first investment round we generally call the seed round. So you do a seed round of investment, you take on some investors, you're going to give them some shares. Right. Then you do a, a, the a round after seed, it's called series A. So you do a series A, you do another investment round, you, you dilute even more and you give more shares away. More and more and more, you're diluting yourself, right? At no point, you as a traditional founder, at no point did you think it was a viable strategy to sell 100% of your shares of your company on day one. No company that, has, that I've, has yeah. ever done this, right? It's like at their seed round, they're like, cool, I'm selling 100% of the shares. This would be stupid. Like, you'd be like, wait, what? Like the incentives are way wrong here. Yeah, you're no longer an owner, right? You're no longer principal. 
Yeah. You're no longer an owner. You have no, you no longer incentivized to build the business, right? Why is this? So, so why, why am I telling you this? Because this is exactly what NFT collections do. Mm-hmm. On day one, they try to mint out, right? They're trying to mint out their entire collection. And that's effectively like giving all of your equity away on day one, which, which is just stupid. It's like, it's really, really stupid to do, right? And it leads you into these problems of like, okay, well then how am I, how am I going to incentivize people to come join the project as, as staff, not just yeah. as like holders, right? How, how do I incentivize people in partnerships? How do I incentivize investors? How do I incentivize, like, how do I incentivize all the other stakeholders that are necessary in order to make something successful? And, and, you know, it's like, it makes a lot of sense to mint out your collection if you're not really going to deliver long-term value. If the most value that you're going to deliver is on day one, Mm -hmm. right? And for a lot of collections, that's the truth. The most value that they will deliver is in the hype and the lead up to to minting. And then post-mint, they don't do very much. It's, it's, it's very much the exception, not the rule that, and that collections survive after the mint and do anything interesting. So, you know, the first thing that NFT collections could do is they could learn from the traditional economy and be like, wait a second, why are we giving all of our assets away on day one? Right. And to be clear, NFT project founders will tell you it's because they want decentralization. They're like, no, man. Like we have to mint out on day one. So we have as many holders as day one, you know, so it's as decentralized as possible. And then, you know, it's like, then some giant whale can't dump on you. This is the, this is the fear that, that all these folks have is like, oh, there's some wallet out there that's holding thousands of NFTs on it. And is all of a sudden just going to dump on the market and tank Mm. the price, right? For the most part, this is an insane belief, right? Because effectively, any even if you did have a, a, a large portion of uh, of the NFTs, if you did that, you would destroy the project, right? Like it's not in your incentive to do that, right? Like you're taking what uh, you're taking like a, a potentially valuable resource, and by playing your hand that way, you're just crushing the market cap. You're, cr- I mean, you're just absolutely crushing the market for this thing, right? And so. There are many, many reasons, like any more than a company would take their shares at, at the seed stage and then fire sell their shares and tell their employees like, well, sorry, your options are worth nothing now because we took all the shares that we were holding and we just dumped it on some, some secondary market. Like, good luck. Like, no, I mean, maybe you could pull out some like crazy historical examples of that happening, but that's like, does not happen effectively, right? And so I, I think these are, there's so many things that we could already learn from in, in corporate governance and how, how organizations actually operate today. And crypto though decides that it wants to speed run everything. Like it wants to speed run the mistakes of, of history economically, uh, uh, from the corporate governance, um, uh, monetarily. Like you pick your, pick whatever field you want Crypto, for some reason, has decided that the best course of action is not to learn from the, the, the past history, but just to speed run all of its mistakes. And, and we just do it a lot faster. Like we're, we make the mistakes very, very quickly. Right? So all that is to sum up is 
Um, there are things that NFT collections can do. One of them is uh, hold back more of their NFT. If they believe that they're here to deliver long-term value, then your NFT should be far more valuable in the future than they are today, right? So why would you sell them today instead of a year from now when they'll be, or two years from now or five years from now when they'll be far more valuable? And you can raise money for that. Um, another thing you can do is uh, thinking about what is actually the, what business are you in, right? The, the thing that makes so many people excited about NFTs, which doesn't really exist today, is this idea that I start with a dream. With that dream, I attract a community. With that community that buys into the dream, I could then fundraise through an NFT collection, right? And now I've given my, my people something that they can identify with, so it's like, oh, they're on Twitter spaces or they're on social media. Like we can see that, way hey, we're both interested in this thing. It's like, cool, it's a profile picture. It raises funds for the project to go after the mission or the dream. And then it potentially gives some kind of novel unit of, of influence in that community, whether it's governance or um, being part of working groups or all, all sorts of things. Like it, it allows you to actually meaningfully participate potentially. That's not like, that's the dream, right? The dream is like, hey, now there's this new way of starting a project that can change the world where you start with a dream, you attract the community, you fundraise with NFTs, and then you turn into a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. And, you know, it's like the whole point of DAOs is you have people, you have capital. How do we efficiently organize these things to go after some kind of mission out there, right? This, these are all the dreams and they're, they're beautiful dreams. And for the most part, they don't exist in real life, right? Like that's not actually what's happening. The closest I could give you to, to an organization that does this really potentially well is Nouns. So if you go to nouns.wtf, this is one of the most famous NFT projects in the world. Um, they have an interesting model of sustainability. They sell one noun, that's their NFT, every day. That's their fundraising mechanism, right? So there was no pre-mine, like there was no pre-mine of, of NFTs. They have, they're selling one a day and they're basically auctioning that one a day. And then that money goes into a treasury. And then that treasury can be voted on by nouns holders of what to do with it. And, you know, it's, it's the closest thing to a real DAO and a real, like the, the, the thing that I laid out, it's like, okay, dream community, you know, uh, fundraising, you know, it's like, that is the closest that there is, in my opinion. Um, so you have these different mechanisms that you could, you know, from a tokenomic standpoint, use to help you deal with the fact that royalties are not a sustainable stream of income, right? You can hold more NFTs back. You can auction off NFTs on some cadence. You know, there's many more that we can go into, but, uh, you know, for the sake of time, let, let, let's, let's stop there. Is it, um, generally speaking, is it important that uh, NFTs eventually mend out? Like, do all NFT collections have a hard cap or not really? Nouns doesn't. Nouns doesn't. has no hard cap. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, but like the number of nouns that exists is much smaller, right? Like yeah. the number of nouns that exist are in the hundreds. Like, I, right. I think there's less, less than 500 nouns where, okay. you know, it's going to take them a year to, to do 365 nouns, 
right? So yeah. just think about to in order to reach 10,000, yeah. how many years do they have there? It's like 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just interesting because I mean, it, it strikes me that you could really use, um, I mean, common key metrics to also look at NFT collections, right? I mean, is it, you know, what's the, what's the total supply? What's the circulating supply? What's the total yeah, cap? Totally. Inflationary, deflationary, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So, so NFT collections definitely have tokenomics in that regard. Yeah. Like, you know, basics. they have a, they have, they have the base, all the basics. Like, how many, how many tokens are there? Who's holding them? What's the distribution? Um, you know, you have uh, the whatever novel mechanics there could be of inflation or deflation. I mean, all that stuff exists with NFT collections, and people look at it. Are there? Um ones to being developed or are there any that have this royalty thing mechanism built in on the smart contract there do you know l1s yeah like yeah yeah um so because you said it was it's not actually part of the smart contract layer right yeah that's yeah yeah because it's not yeah no it's a good it's a good question um i don't know the answer for sure what i would tell you is my closest answer might be the near ecosystem so in the near on the near protocol, um, devs get thirty percent of the revenue that's generated from their smart contract mm. by default. So that that's at the protocol level. Um, I don't know for a fact though how that plays out with NFT collections on near, but I would say if you're interested in diving deeper in that, go look at the near ecosystem because they they probably have the best shot at that being true. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Um, do you have a hard cap? At the end of our yeah. scheduled time, no. Are you are you down to go into the gaming NFT space for a little bit? Sure, sure. Awesome. Well, so um, from what I read about Starship Guild, this is, uh, I guess, kind of the business model, right? In, invest in um, gaming NFTs, many of which pay dividends or at least can can create. Uh, what do you call it? APY, I guess, um, by being loaned out and so forth. Is this is this what Starship Guild does? Is um, try to collect these and then make money off of them, or is it? Am I misrepresenting that? So, in in 2021, a popular business model in blockchain gaming was buying the assets, buying gaming assets, loaning them out to people. Those mm -hmm. people would play the game. They would earn some money from playing the game. And then there'd be a revenue share on, on the money earned between us and, and the players, right? Yeah. And this, this was like a really nice formula in many regards in the sense that the players took no asset risk. They didn't need to start with any money. Like they didn't have to buy into anything. It was not a loan. So they're not on the hook for anything, right? So the guild took all of the asset risk and the yeah. players could just earn and you know, for some of them, and some periods of time in 2021, that money was more than they were making in their full-time job. So yeah. they were like, "Wow, <laughs> yeah, this is incredible!" Right? Yeah. And and for the guild, it was like we went from you know zero to doing like on 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 course to do seven million ARR in the course of a couple months, right? Like like that's unbelievable. To build a sure. business that that quickly, um, but what's the problem? The problem is none of it was sustainable, mm -hmm. right? The problem was that 
it was actually just another kind of like modified Ponzi basically. And, you know, in crypto, we keep falling for the same, the same shtick, right? And, and the shtick happens to manifest itself in different forms. So we kind of get fooled a little for a little while, but you know, the shtick is basically this. It's like, okay, Lovis, you're going to give me a hundred bucks. I'm going to give you a dollar a day. Now, in the beginning, you think you're a genius. You're like, oh my God, I'm making 1% a day on my money. Like I'm Warren Buffett. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm the smartest financial guru on the planet. And so you start feeling really good. It's like day after day, you're getting a dollar, a dollar, a dollar. You're like, wow, this is great. Like pretty soon I'm going to be a millionaire, right? And then even for a period of time, it's like you start telling your friends and people get excited and then they buy in. And then maybe that $100 you invested it, the principal like shoots up all of a sudden it's worth $200 or $250. And, and maybe your passive income off of that ends up going like $2 a day. And you're just like, man, I am crushing it. Like this is unbelievable. Right. And the hype builds and more and more people buy in. But what happens? What happens is that it's not sustainable. Like I am just giving you a portion of the money you've already given me. Right. Like I'm not actually going and making money in any kind of sustainable way. You gave me a hundred dollars and I'm just paying you out of that. Right. Yeah. So eventually what you end up seeing as time goes on is that your the thing that you invested in a hundred dollars that shot up to two hundred dollars eventually goes and dips below a hundred. It's like, oh, it's it's like at eighty dollars or seventy-five dollars. And you justify it to yourself. You're like, well, I've been making this yield this dollar a day. So like if I add up the yield and I add up this principle, I'm still in the positive. I'm still in the green. And so you hold on. And then what happens? It keeps tanking. And your dollar a day that you were making goes to like five cents a day. And the original asset that you were holding ends up going to like $5 or $3, right? And you look back on it and you're like, wait a second, I gave $100. And when I sum up everything, I've only made about, I've only like gotten back $50. So actually I've lost half my money, right? It's like, here I was this, this great financial genius. I was making all this money, making all this money. And somehow I've ended up with half the money I started with. Does this sound familiar? It should sound familiar because it, yeah. like in, the, in crypto, we call this the node system, right? So if you look at uh, the node model, like strong, for example, this is exactly the node model. This is also the model for yield farming and liquidity mining. This is also the, the model for blockchain gaming. This is also the, the model for so many other things in crypto, right? It's the same, it's the exact same paradigm over and over again. It's like, I'm going to give you some money. You're going to give me a portion of that back. But ultimately, I, it's going to race to zero. And I'm going to end up with a, a fraction of whatever I gave you. And this is exactly what was happening in blockchain gaming. Now, you know, we were really hoping that there would be sustainable business streams that would power fundamentally the game because there are, and, and this, is, this is always the hope. It's like the hope drives you to believe that they'll fix the underlying problems in the economy, even if you identify those problems early. But then the reality sets in and it's like, oh, they didn't, <laughs> right? Well, right, like, yeah, it's like the, the problems exist. And those problems overtake the system. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's a house of cards, right? So but 
they didn't fix it or they couldn't fix it because i mean if there's simply no i mean this was a big thing with uh anchor protocol right it's like oh the sustainable yield would be like maybe seven or eight percent which is that already sounds pretty high but then they're like oh but we you know we're boosting it for marketing purposes and i always thought i mean you know seven or eight percent doesn't sound so bad but of course it's not 20 and then there's probably better offers somewhere else where you take somebody else's money but um but I mean, what I'm trying to say is even getting to 7% sustainable yield, if that were the case, is amazing, right? That's, that's way more yeah. than you get in a lot of places. Um, but I guess in gaming, what are potential like real value creation mechanisms inside games? Is there such a thing as like virtual work or like virtual, like how, how would that work? Like what is, do you know of one or two mechanisms that actually create value that people would pay for? I mean, it, no, I'm not saying like not as much money to like quit your job and just play, but like yeah, any, yeah, yeah, yeah. any money. <laughs> sure. Um, so probably the most sustainable blockchain game in the world today, uh, which is not super fancy, but effective, is this app on the App Store called Bitcoin Miner. And mm -hmm. in the Bitcoin Miner game, it's kind of like an idle clicker game. Like you are a Bitcoin miner, you're mining different cryptocurrencies. It, uh, it's almost like a, a farm bill of, of Bitcoin mining. And they give you Satoshis for playing the game, right? So okay. as, you're, as you're mining, you're actually mining Satoshis, right? Now, well, I shouldn't say you're actually, you're not actually mining Satoshis, but they're giving you Satoshis for playing this game. Now, naturally your question should be, where are they getting the money to buy the Satoshis to give you to play sure. the game? Yeah. And it's coming from advertising. So as you're playing the game, these ads pop up and it's like, you, you're forced to watch it, blah, blah, blah. And then what they're effectively giving you is just a revenue share on the ads that you're watching. Right. Right. This is the most sustainable blockchain game in the world today. <laughs> right. Like uh, now that's at a very simple level of an economy that, you know, functionally works, is sustainable. And, you know, you, you're not, a, it's not a Ponzi, right? You're, it's not like yeah. your Satoshis are going to disappear out of your wallet or something. Um, so what's, what's, what are other more sophisticated, interesting systems? Because most people will listen to that like, yeah, that's not, that's not that interesting though. It's like, it works, but it's not that interesting. There's a game out there called Neopolis. And in Neopolis, they turn the world around you into monopoly right mm -hmm. so they they like turn your, your the environment around you and they cut it up into a board and like you can build little buildings on the board around you and you can get income from that and it's a total web 2 game you can download it on the app store right now neopolis and you know there's in-app purchases the game is generating a significant amount of revenue it you know by 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 most metrics, we would say it's a successful Web2 game. What are they doing? They're introducing land, but they're not introducing it in the way that you might think that they're introducing it. They're saying, look, this board around you, the world around you, you can now, instead of just putting buildings on the land, you can actually own the underlying land. So you can pay like $25 to own the land that's you know on the McDonald's down the street from you, right? And if you own the land, it costs like, yeah, uh, it doesn't cost very much to buy the land. But if you own the land, 
and you build ex digital experiences on the land and those digital experiences attract the web two players onto the land to build buildings onto your land. We will give you a portion of the revenue that's coming from the web two game, right? So the web two players win because a whole, the web three players are building experiences for them, right? That they're paying for, right? The game wins because now you're getting a bunch of user generated content, yeah. right? From the web, from the web three players, the web three players win because they get to participate in a real money economy where they're yeah. actually being rewarded for their efforts. Right. So this is real. This is great. Right? That's, this is very creative I, for sure. Yeah. So very I, idea. it's very creative. You know, yes, there are still, there are risks. It's not guaranteed to succeed there. You know, there's all sorts of problems that could be developed in the economy, whatever. But at, at the very base level of it, it is actually a sustainable economy. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when we think about like more broadly, what are the, like from, a, from, from, from just a basic level, what does a game need to do in order to actually um, in order to be a successful blockchain game, there's basically two things that the game needs to do. You need to create a game where players, one, want to own the assets to experience the game, and two, want to trade to enhance that experience. This is like at a fundamental level, you need to do these two things as a blockchain game. If you don't, then it's, it's going to fall apart. Let's unpack it a little bit. Why do you need them to trade to enhance their experience? Because if you don't have trade, you don't have an economy. And if you don't have an economy, why the hell is there a blockchain? Yeah. Right? Like, the, like you don't need a, a, a blockchain unless there's an economy involved of some kind. Yeah. Right? So at its base level, you need to be incentivizing players to trade to enhance their experience. And then the first point, it's like the players need to own the assets to experience the game. If the players do not own the assets, your incentive structures will always be wonky. Think about what happened with Axie, for example. Axie Infinity, for those that don't know, is one of the largest blockchain games in the world. Um, it is what we built our guild on top of, right? So there were investors that wanted to buy the assets. But the investor's uh, motive is to make money. The investors are not players. The investors don't care about playing the game. The investors are there to make money right? The players take those assets and they play the game. But because the players don't own the assets, they're not interested in putting their own money into the game. All they're right. interested in doing is playing the game, earning money and extracting that money out of the economy. Yeah. So now you have investors who are value extracting, you have players who are value extracting. Where's there going to be enough money coming into this ecosystem? to mm -hmm. combat all of this value extraction that's happening. Right. It's possible, but it's very unlikely. Right? So, you know, the first rule here is you need players themselves to want to buy the assets, not to earn, but to experience the game. And that's super critically important. Mm -hmm. And that, like, once you get those two things, if you can do those two things at a really high level, you'll have a very successful game. And nobody, cool. frankly, nobody's doing that at a high level today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's, uh, I'm wondering if this goes 
together with i mean so what you said right there needs to be trade because otherwise you don't have an economy then you, you don't really know a price right if there's no if there's no transaction you don't really know a price for assets either um and then i guess from just just like networks in general um i've learned that the uh i mean i guess it's i guess it's a theory but it, i guess it works sometimes the um the total transaction volume times the actual value transacted is apparently an approximation roughly of the network value. And I wonder mm. if that, if that's, I mean, it's probably on some levels plays into that as well. Right. Um, I would assume. Yeah. I mean, I think where that breaks down is like, okay, what's the value of Axie's network? Cause yeah. the, the, that number is really high. Right. But that, but actually the value in Axie's network is very low right now. Yeah. Right. So, so this is the problem is, Ponzi's can look like they're doing a lot of significant transaction volume. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. but that doesn't mean that the, the network is valuable. Yeah. And so, so this is like, I think that metric works if you have a sustainable system. Yeah. And, you know, like we could argue what's sustainable, what's not sustainable, but ultimately uh, we can all agree Ponzi's are not sustainable. Right? No, <laughs> right? for so, sure. so uh, this is, I think, um, a, a really important point is that we in crypto have been obsessed with creating zero sum games. It's like various versions of I win, you lose. That's not how the real economy works. Right. The real economy is positive sum. Yeah. The whole economy, most of the whole economy that you see around you is built on the idea that we can, we can engage in trade and both of us win. You win and I win simultaneously. If it was zero sum, it would be highly problematic, right? You would get you would get these 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 problems where it's like, okay, everybody's basically dying and starving because the the eight percent of people that are sophisticated at trade are taking everybody's money, right? Yeah. And you know maybe you can argue that to to a certain extent with with income inequality, but like it's not that extreme, right? Most of most of trade today is positive sum. If you go to your mechanic to fix your car, you have money. Your mechanic has the skills to fix your car. Your mechanic you know, doesn't need their skills for their own car. They've already fixed their car, right? Like you're going to, you're going to give them money. They're going to give you their skills. You're both going to be better off. You're going to have a fixed car. They're going to have monetized their skills. Win-win, right? Uh, That's right. what most of the economy is, right? It's yeah. trade. It's win-win trade. In crypto, we're obsessed with zero-sum trade. We're like, somehow we have walked into this like, bonanza casino where everybody's trying to take everybody else's money instead of figuring out how do we actually build really valuable use cases that encourage positive sum trade but i wonder if it's because of um i mean on one level because it's still small right so it's like oh there's just not enough interactions possible so how am i going to create real value that i think that's probably what some people think then the other thing is well if i can you know do do it this way and make life-changing money for the founding team then why wouldn't i in a way you know so it's like but yeah but how do you but but then at the same time i mean there are projects that are building with a really long time horizon i think and you probably don't hear about them as much um Correct. for that for that reason right because they're they're building the, the bad actors they get the most press right that's some bolts yeah yeah, exactly. yeah and so you know i i've been pretty frustrated with you know, there's been a, a number of Web3 influencers that have gone on podcasts and they're asked a very simple question like, 
okay, what are the use cases for Web3? And they kind of like flub around and they just like dance around it and don't give really coherent answers or explanations. Um, And that has been really frustrating for me to see because I'm like, it's pretty clear what the use cases are. Like there are dozens that I can name off the top of my head that are interesting, right? Like, for example, the fastest, easiest, cheapest way for me to send money to my family back in Iran is through Bitcoin. Like, sure. like I, I can't do that through some wire transfer or ACH or Swift or any of that stuff. Like today, the easiest way to do it is through Bitcoin. And somebody might say, well, you know, Iran is a sanctioned nation. You know, it's like, like pick a different nation. And it's like, okay, well, I run a company where we have employees in half a dozen countries. And it costs me more than $60 to pay my Romanian iOS developer. It's cheaper for me to send him USDC on Solana than it is for me to to pay him through a wire transfer. And and it's like, you would only know that if you're meaningfully participating in the economy, right? But a lot of these people, it's like, it's all theory to them. It's all just like, oh, like we're all talking about these ideas and it's like, no, actually live these things. And if you live them, the answers become obvious, right? Yeah. It's like I was talking to um, uh, Russian dissident journalists and they were like, crypto has been a godsend for us because we can finally fundraise and not we'll, we'll worry about like who's going to come after us and who's going to come right. after our donors, right? Yeah. And, and even for the donors, it's like, cool, they can, they can hide their identity when contributing to these causes that they believe in and not worry about retribution from, you know, a st- a, some state government, right? The regime. So yeah. the regime, it's like, yeah. there are so many, it's like, uh, how, like, if we had hours, I would sit here and give you all the use cases, right? And it, it's just ridiculous to me when I hear people not able to articulate why these things matter. They matter for so many reasons, right? Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I think the, the use cases, there's so many. Yeah, and it's exactly so. You named some big ones, and then, but I think this thing—the point that we touched on earlier, right—it gives us a new um, sandbox to iterate quickly. And like, yeah, you it's like yes, with the caveat we're speed running all the mistakes. However, <laughs> however, I I think it's to me it's clearly visible that some of the solutions that are being developed are going like they're far superior than what we got going on. So I'm excited for that, right? To to get yeah. into the mainstream and of course totally. it'll take time right but um, I, I think this like this boundless innovation this almost like open source feeling that this brings is um yeah it's, it's going to make waves no matter what and well, I, I think yeah, yeah. go ahead oh, sorry go ahead well uh, what i want to say is um i think it's important to for people to understand the experiment that's being run here hmm. the true experiment that's being run here like, for example, people ask me all the time, is crypto real money? And, and they're like, well, I can't go into Starbucks and pay with Bitcoin, man. It's not real money. And I look at them and I say, well, you can't go into a Starbucks in America and pay with Swiss francs or British pounds. Right. But both of those currencies are real money, right? <laughs> um, you know, context matters a lot. And what, what cryptocurrency is is the native currency of that particular blockchain. 
And those blockchains are actually digital nations. The currency has relevancy inside of the digital borders of that blockchain nation. Mm -hmm. if, if it happens to be that you know, the economic activity inside of a blockchain, inside of that digital nation is so powerful and so interesting that it somehow spills over across the world. And one day you're able to use these native cryptocurrencies outside of their digital nations, then great, fantastic. Like, welcome to the free market. That's how it works. If there's a better solution, it will be adopted, right? But even if, it, even if Bitcoin or Ethereum or any other um, cryptocurrency is never adopted in such a way that you could walk into a Starbucks and pay with it, it doesn't mean that it's a failure because you have to look at the actual economic activity on that blockchain. So Ethereum is a nation, right? Avalanche is a nation. Solana is a nation. They have a population. We call them wallets. They have domestic trade. We call them smart contracts. They have foreign trade. We call them bridges, right? They have security. We call it civil resistance. They have voting. We call it consensus, right? They have many of the aspects that we see in proper nations, right? And the, the, the interesting part here is can we build digital nations that have enough interesting use cases and economic activity and, and they're buzzing that they become viable infrastructures for robust trade across the world? And I think the answer is yes. Like, I think it's totally possible, right? We're not there yet today, but that's the experiment that's being run. And so, you know, don't, don't fool yourselves um, to thinking that for success to be reached, you have to be able to take Ethereum and pay at the grocery store. Like, like again, you cannot go to an American grocery store and pay with Russian rubles, you know, or, or euros. Like, you, you can't do that, right? Like, those currencies have meaning in the economic systems that people participate in in those regions. So, you know, on the flip side, though, there are some currencies like the US dollar that become so powerful and proliferate so much that you can transact with the US dollar in many places outside of their borders. Could cryptocurrency, certain cryptocurrencies be as powerful as the US dollar one day where they can be transacted outside of their digital borders? Sure. But that doesn't, that, that's not the success criteria for, for the cryptocurrency, right? Any more than that's the success criteria of a particular nation's currency. Yeah, exactly. Well, so, you know, I'm uh, from Germany currently living there and I was in the US a couple of weeks uh, in, over, the, over uh, July and August. And I couldn't even purchase alcohol with my German ID, right? Because it had to be a US ID. <laughs> Yeah. At least at some stores. I was like, all right, all right, whatever. Here's my wife's. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, Rockwell, thank you so much. This was, I mean, was super interesting. I was on the edge of my seat, even though I'm standing um, the whole time. <laughs> um, I really appreciate your time. And thank you so much for laying this out so beautifully. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Have a good rest of the day. Lovis, thanks for having me. And, and you really fooled me. I didn't know you were standing this whole time. Wow. <laughs> because you had a standing desk. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was... All right, but we'll take care of yourself and hopefully we'll chat again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much.
This podcast was not financial or tax advice. This channel is strictly educational and is not investment advice or a solicitation to buy or sell any assets or to make any financial decisions. This video is not tax advice. Talk to your accountant, do your own research. None of this is legal advice. This podcast is strictly educational. Talk to your lawyer.